Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, he will sit on the glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. When the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, you did not see, sorry, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes to clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those of you on his left, depart from me. You are not cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did you see we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did, did not for one, for at least these, you did not do for me. Then he will go away to internal punishment, but the righteous to internal life. Mark 12, verses 38 to 44. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplace and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show, make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came in and put two very small copper coins, worthy of only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all of the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Thanks, Anne. Apologies for not updating the slide, everyone. Let me pray. Father God, as we come to this passage in Mark this morning, we ask that you would touch our hearts, you would change us, you would take the words that we are about to hear and you would do the work in our hearts, Lord. You would bring about change in our lives. Help us to be more like you. Help us to understand your grace 
at a deeper level. Amen. In 1859, the 34-year-old French acrobat, Charles Blondin, has anyone heard of him? Became famous. Yep, a lot of people have heard of this guy uh, for his tightrope antics. This crazy Frenchman uh, had a rope stretched out across Niagara Falls, attempting to be the first to tightrope walk across it. 25,000 turned up to watch him on the 30th of June, gathering on both the Canadian and the American banks. Here's the Niagara Falls, for those of you who haven't seen it, uh, with many bets that he wouldn't make it. No safety rope, no rope harness tied to him, no circling helicopter or jet boat or anything else modern that uh, modern daredevils have to help reduce the risk of death. And he started out. A third of the way he crossed, he lowered a rope down to the boat waiting beneath the Maid of the Mist. And he hauled up a bottle of wine and started to drink it. Then he carried on his way and got to the other side. Here he is here. He had a 20-minute rest, and then he went back across. And this time, he carried an old-fashioned tripod, one of those big, heavy, clunky things that you need to put like a hood over your head to take a photo. He walked across halfway, he stopped, he rested it on the tightrope, took a photo of the waiting crowd, put it back on his back and carried on. He got to the other side. He announced he'd do something even crazier in, uh, on the 4th of July, which was just a few days later. Uh, so therefore, an even bigger crowd gathered to see him. And they were shocked because he started to walk across without a balancing pole. This is the Niagara Falls, and he's walking across without a balancing pole. Then, halfway across, he lay down on the cable. He flipped himself over, and he started walking backwards. He made several journeys that day. This is actually real. I can't believe it. Uh, once with a sack across his head so he couldn't see where he was going. He must have been so in tune with his feet and the, and the rope. He did somersaults and backflips. He stood on his head. A few days later, he did it again, and he pushed a wheelbarrow across. Once he walked across on stilts. He carried a chair across, and he sat down. And that one was nearly fatal because the chair fell off. Um, and he managed to recover himself. One of his most famous stunts that my brother had even heard of was he carried a stove and utensils across. At the center of the cable, he started a fire on his stove. He cooked an omelette. He lowered it via a rope to the people in the boat below who ate it for breakfast. He then uh, carried on and got to the end of it. He crossed the Niagara Falls 300 times. There was no longer any doubt that he could do it. He was a crazy man. When he was running out of stunt ideas, he asked the crowd if they believed he could carry another man across. Everyone said, yes, yes, of course we believe you can. But do you think anyone would offer to be that person? <laughs> there were varying stories on the internet about the circumstances around him uh, picking a person. Some reports say there was a large lump of money um, on offer, $1,000, which was a lot of money back then. Um, and a lot of people turned up to be picked. Uh, as he carried around, he, as he carried on, he had obviously had to decide, no, you're too tall, you're too short, you're too heavy, whatever. But when he got to the right size of people, he took them all to the edge of the rope. He put a sack of like 200 pounds, whatever that is in kilos, on his back and walked across just to prove that he could do it. Uh, he took them to the edge and then asked them all, do you believe I can do this? Each one of them said, yes, no doubts. Then he asked each of them, will you let me carry you across the Niagara Falls? 
and every single one of them said, not on your life. Every one of them declined to actually get on his back, even though they watched him doing these crazy things. No one would do it. And then he found someone. And I tell you this because it is an amazing story of letting go of control and finding your life. But I'm going to make you wait until the end of the talk to hear that story. So in today's scripture reading, we read from Mark's gospel, uh, just six verses. And these are the last of the teachings uh, of the temple, of the teachings that Jesus does in the temple, which we've been covering for the last five or six weeks. For those of you who are visiting, we have been going through Mark's gospel for about the last year and a half uh, with interruptions along the way. And we have just covered uh, a set of teachings where Jesus teaches in the temple courts from a whole range of things, from his authority, the parable of the tenants, paying taxes, marriage in the afterlife, the greatest commandment, and so on. And this week, we get to this teaching on Jesus where Mark has presented a short but a very punchy lesson in the few verses that we've just heard. I'm going to put them back up here because I know you've all got Charles Blondin in your head. And just let's remind us what those three verses are. Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus is warning his listeners to watch out for the teachers of the law, which were also called the scribes. Uh, they were the law keepers. These people like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect and have seats of importance and honor. These people like power. They like influence. They like respect. They like the praise of other people. They like to be important. And they appear super spiritual as they do so. They pray their showy prayers. But for all their glamorous and super spiritual looking people, outward appearances, they're actually rotten at the core. They are exploiting widows. This devouring widows language, sorry, widows houses, means just pretty much that. They are making a profit from the most vulnerable in society. They are doing the complete opposite to what they should be doing in their position. See, one of their legal functions was to be a consultant in the estate planning for widows. This role actually gave them the opportunity to abuse the vulnerable so they, if they wanted to, which a lot of them did. They convinced the lonely and the susceptible woman that their money should be used for holy work, which the scribes and teachers of the law actually themselves directly benefited from. Jesus clearly has a very dim view of this behavior, declaring that they will be punished most severely in their search for the praise of mankind rather than the praise of God, they are exploiting the most vulnerable. In their desire to climb to the seat of the influential, the important, they're squashing the vulnerable to get there. And in their Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, there was a lot of instruction for God's people about looking after the widows, the fatherless, the orphan. In today's speak, the most vulnerable in society. The strongest warnings in the Old Testament are associated with not doing this, especially exploiting them. We read in God's uh, command in Exodus, do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children 
fatherless. Pretty strong language, isn't it? And we see God's heart in Deuteronomy 10. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the greatest God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them rest, giving them food and clothing. So we see God's heart there for the vulnerable. And this warning is for all of God's people, for all time, to make sure that those who are vulnerable in our society are not being exploited, but who are being cared for. And the Christian church over history, despite many faults, has actually been known for doing this. The early Christians were the ones who used to go to the the rubbish dumps in the first century and pick up the dumped babies, especially all the girls that had been dumped there because they didn't, weren't wanted. They were just lying there in the gutters to die. And the Christians were the ones who went and picked them up, used their own limited resources to raise them and give them a chance of life. Christians were the ones who set up hospitals, rest homes, the list goes on. And Christians in the 2,000 years have done other initiatives, but were not always squeaky clean. We need to ask ourselves some questions as we think about this passage today. Are we spending more time securing for ourselves a seat of importance in our workplace or in our social circles rather than looking out for those who are on the outer rim? Are we accumulating for ourselves beautiful lifestyles and having nothing left to give to those who are poor and vulnerable in our world? Are we taking notice of the way we shop? Do we buy things that exploit the vulnerable in their manufacturing process? Are our purchases supporting sweatshops or child labor, modern slavery, or are we buying ethically made goods? I know it's hard, but we are beginning to have choice. It's painful to our wallets. Let's be honest, they're always more expensive but the cost that other people pay with their lives far outweighs what we pay. Do we just need to buy less? Are we caught up with the desire for status that in the end other people are really paying for and being devoured by our choices? None of us individually can solve the global problems of the exploitation of the vulnerable, but we can all live our lives in ways that actually stand against these broken systems and actually is far more godly than any holy or showy prayers that we might offer, or spiritual facade. The challenge to us all, actually, that really hits home at a new level, when we realize that Jesus himself identifies with the vulnerable and with the poor. In Matthew's Gospel, there is that famous teaching that Anne read before, where we read about the time when God says to each group, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat, or you didn't give me something to eat. I was thirsty. I was a stranger and you invited me in, or to the other group, I, you didn't invite me in. Jesus says, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. What you do for the poor, you are doing for Jesus. Jesus identifies with the poor. He became poor himself, born in a stable to common people. He could have been born in a, in a palace but he identifies with the poor. And when we love the poor, when we act and live in ways that defend the vulnerable, we're looking after the people of God's own heart and we are loving Jesus. This week, I would encourage you to spend some time thinking and praying about how you can look after the poor in whatever sphere you're in. They're everywhere. 
There are people everywhere who have less than us. We often always look up, don't we? We always look and see what people have more than us. We're always like, those people have so much more. We compare ourselves, but do you know what? There are so many more people who have way less than us, especially in our country. There are so many ways we can love the poor, we can look out for the equivalent of the widows in the first century. And if any of you want to know how to support some of the poorest in our society, you are welcome to come with us to the Te Whakaora fundraising dinner on the 1st of September. We've talked about these guys before. They're an organisation who really help in amazing ways the South Auckland population who really have nothing. So let, let me know if you want to come to that. The second three verses of our reading today from Mark also involve widows. So pick up your Bible again. But this time we're talking with an actual real widow which Jesus uses in a sort of object lesson with his disciples. They sit down to watch the people as they put their money in the offering boxes. We don't really have this anymore. We have AP, so we, none of us know who's giving what. It's probably a good thing, actually. Anyway, Jesus watches how the crowd throw their coins in, observing how the rich pour in large amounts. No doubt obvious to everyone that they've got a lot and they're pouring a lot in as the coins clink their way down into the box. And then this widow comes, vulnerable, not only in social status, but also in financial security, and she puts in two tiny copper coins. And Jesus declares that what she has put into the offering is far more valuable than what all the others have put in together. Not just each person, but everyone together collectively, she puts in more. And we're going to focus on the statement of Jesus in three parts, and then I promise you we're going to get to Charles Blondin, because I know you're waiting. He says, truly, I tell you, this widow has put in more to the treasury than all the others. And we're going to look at what does this statement signify? What is this lesson really about? And how do we do what Jesus is asking us to do? We're going to go through them quite quickly. So firstly, what does this statement signify? So on face value, the woman gave the least, didn't she? She gave two copper coins, which are worth less than two cents in our modern currency. They were the smallest coins in circulation at the time. But the sacrifice she gave was the greatest. That's the key. The sacrifice she gave was the greatest. And the message translation uh, puts this passage in a way that helps us to really understand what Jesus is getting at. Eugene Peterson translate this, translates, Sitting across from the offering box, he, Jesus, was observing how the crowd tossed money in for collection. Many of the rich were making large contributions. One poor widow came in and put two small cents, two small coins, a measly two cents. Jesus called his disciples over and said, the truth is that this poor widow gave more to the collection than all the others put in together. All the others gave what they'll never miss. She gave extravagantly what she couldn't afford. She gave her all. See, everyone else is giving out of their excess. They're giving what they say they can afford. And when we say we can afford something in life, we say we can buy that without it really affecting us. If we can't afford something and we go ahead and buy it anyway, it impacts us and we go into debt. We might have to eat beans on toast for a few weeks, depending on how much we've spent on what we can't afford. It actually affects the way we live. And these rich people are giving to God what they can afford. They're giving away from the excess that actually would not affect them. It would not be missed. They're giving in a, in a way that doesn't affect their lives. And when you think about it, it's actually really just giving God the dregs. 
the dregs of a bottle of oil, for example, uh, when you've used everything you need, the dregs are the excess at the bottom, the very last leftovers. So the wealthy are giving the dregs the leftovers. Once they have allocated everything else to the budget, they're giving God what they've got left. It has not cost them anything. It is not affecting the way they live. It might look impressive to the other people who are there hearing all these coins go chinking in, but to God it is the least impressive. And what Jesus points out that here, that although this lady has given the smallest amount, she's actually sacrificed the most. She's given all that she has to live on. She has given her life away. And it's important to see that this lesson isn't actually just about money. This woman wasn't giving away her money, she was giving her life to God. In giving away her money, she was showing that she was putting her life in God's hands. This is what God wants. He doesn't want our money. He doesn't need our money. He wants our lives. He doesn't want the excess or the dregs. He wants us wholly and fully. To be honest, until we give ourselves to God in this way, we won't ever understand the fullness of life in Christ. If we're wondering why this Christian life is dull and nothing like what people seem to go on about, perhaps we're only giving the dregs to God and we're not actually giving our lives fully to him. This is the widow's gift. It signifies a sacrifice, not just giving in excess. So that's what this statement um, is about. And this leads us to part two, what's this lesson of Jesus really? It's actually more, it's more about giving what, not what we can afford. It's about giving a sacrifice. It's about control versus surrender. See, the Christian life is all about surrender. It's giving over control of our lives to God. The rich people were simply paying lip service to God. They're giving, oh, we're just going to give the 10%. We're going to tick that religious box. And I'm going to carry on with my life so it's not really affected. They still held on to control. When you hold on to your money, you're holding on to control. They still had plenty left, which they can rely on. Plenty left that they can live the way they want, dress the way, the way they want, spend at their leisure the way they want. And when this widow gave all she had to God, she gave her control over to God because money is a form of control, isn't it? When we have money, we control what we eat, what we drink, what we dress, how we interact socially, everything, our future. Our future rests in money, not in God. Can do. When we give over to God, like this woman, this woman was giving her very life to God, and this is how we can live too. This is the sacrifice that Jesus saw. It's a challenge to us today too. And it's always a challenge because we keep having a tendency to go back to want to grab control. How much of our lives are we giving over to God? Are we just giving him the excess, the excess time and money so we can tick the box and pat ourselves on the back? We've done that religious obligation. Or are we giving all of our lives in surrender, releasing control and trusting God? It's very, and it's also very easy to look at this passage and feel overwhelmed at the message Jesus is giving and go, oh my gosh, I just need to give more time and more money. I just need to be better at that and start kind of, you know, telling ourselves off. It's easy to feel challenged in the moment and motivate, right, I'm going to give more today. Sarah's preached a message on this and we're just going to give more today and then the next day, but you know what? The motivation is going to wane. We're going to slide back to our usual habits and we're actually not going to be any different in a week's time. It's also very easy to feel burdened 
by that one more thing we just have to do as Christians. That one more thing to be. The deadly bees, as my university lecturer used to say. Be this, be that, do this, do that as a Christian. And it's not life-giving. It's heavy. None of these reasons will make us live like God has asked us to. None of us, none of them will be motivating. They will all fall short of genuine motivation to live our lives trusting God. The striving to be better, to do better, will simply burn us out. And I think there are a lot of people who have lost their faith because of this. It's really sad. The third point, therefore, is how do we do what Jesus is asking us to do? How do we be like this widow to actually look at the true motivation? How can we actually bring about this change in our lives in giving God control? And I'm going to be really practical here. I'm actually, I'm hoping the whole thing's been practical, but really practical, become captivated by Jesus. Jesus himself became that poor person. Jesus gave up the control of his life. Jesus gave up everything in a total act of undeserved grace. The widow points to Jesus, the giver himself. Jesus is the one who gave up everything he had to rescue us, to redeem us, to bring us back to himself from the darkness. He didn't just give the excess. He didn't just stay up in heaven and send Gabriel to go and get us. That's the angel, for those of you who don't know. While he stayed comfortable in heaven, enjoying his kingly status, no, he gave himself up. He left the throne of heaven and he put aside all of his riches, all of his power, all of his honor, and he became a mere man. As Paul says in Philippians 2, he made himself nothing. He gave up everything and he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, giving up the control, allowing himself to be tortured, mocked, crucified by the very people he made. And if that's not an example of totally giving up control, I don't know what is total surrender. And it's only as we become captivated by this amazing example of Jesus, of realizing he didn't do this while we were even guaranteed to worship him and recognize him. He did it while we were still sinners, while we were still broken and totally ignorant of our need of him. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He was devoured on the cross. He literally gave away his life for us. And Jesus isn't calling us to give over and trust our lives to a remote and distant God. Somewhere up there who doesn't understand what it's like for us down here. He wants us to give over control to someone who has been here. No other religious system will ever do this. No other God of any other religious system will ever give up anything, let alone their life for their followers. But when we become captivated by what Jesus has done for us, he is like that widow giving up everything for us, surrender. And that grace is what changes us to the core. And we then become like him. We become like we're captivated by, right? Everyone knows that. If we look at something and we surround ourselves by something or someone, we become like them. I've just realized I'm doing that in marriage. I'm becoming more like Graham and hopefully he's becoming more like me. <laughs> it's a wonderful thing. And when we surround ourselves with Jesus, we become like him. And the gift he gave us makes us easy to give him control of our lives. We become convinced that actually we really can trust him. We really can trust that he is walking through the dark valley with us. 
holding us. It doesn't mean that life will be problem-free, but we find fulfillment and freedom, and we are no longer controlled. See, when we could try and control things ourselves, control our money, control our lives, hold on to it tight-fisted, we actually um, become controlled by these things, don't we? It's been my observation that the more money and material possessions that people have, the more stress it brings into their life, more worry and anxiety. Some of the most free and happy people I know are those that have the least, and they're always giving it away. Jesus promises in Matthew 10, 39, whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. When we try and hold on to control in our lives, we try to find ourselves, we try to save our lives and cultivate ourselves, as the rest of culture will tell us, Jesus says we'll lose our lives. But when we surrender ourselves fully to God, we will find ourselves. We will find the deepest fulfillment of life and it will save us for eternity. I promised I would come back to Blondin. Some of you are like, how the heck does this return uh, relate to this talk? As I close, uh, we got up to the part where he couldn't find anyone to be willing to be carried across on his back. And to be honest, I can't blame them. I wouldn't do it. But knowing he had a huge crowd with expectations of a bigger stunt than he'd done before, he knew he had to find someone. Uh, who would agree, and the only person who he could possibly convince to carry across was his manager, a guy called Harry Colcord, who was, of course, absolutely terrified. But there were two things Colcord knew. He knew that there did need to be someone. The crowd was hungry for a show, and there was this massive expectation on them, and at this rate, he was the only one left. And the second thing he knew, he knew Blondin could do it. He had watched him the 300 times. He was his manager. He knew, hands on heart, uh, he knew that, Harry, that Blondin could do it. But there's one thing to know something in your head and the other thing in your heart, eh? Here's a picture of them. Ah, oh, here we are. Not quite sure why he kept his top hat on, but anyway. Halfway across, Blondin started to sway. And Harry, terrified, started to try and counterbalance Blondin and about to fall to their deaths as the newspapers recorded it. Blondin had to yell up, at, yell up at Harry, Harry, until I clear this place, you must become part of me, mind, body, and soul. If I sway, you must rest in me completely and sway completely with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself or we will both go down to our death. Blondin said, if you try to save yourself, you will lose yourself and me. And Jesus says the same. If you try and save yourself at all, you'll lose yourself. If you try and keep control of your life, your money, your security, your future, if you try and control it, you will lose it. You will live in fear and bondage to these things. And like Harry Blondin, you'll go down to your death. But if you trust in me completely, if you let go of the control of your life, you will be saved. You will find your life because I gave up control and went to my death so that you didn't have to. So that you could be rescued from eternal death, which you deserved. Friends, are we resting in the Lord completely? Like the widow? Or are we grasping onto control? Are we trying to counterbalance, trying to save our lives, trying to do 
life without God fully, like the rich people throwing in what they could afford, not what really affected the way they lived? Are there areas in your life where you aren't willing to give God control, where you can't bring yourself to trust Him? You can absolutely trust Him. Are you like the rich people who only give God the excess of your life, the spare parts but not full surrender like the widow? Are you resisting where God is taking you, trying to counterbalance because you don't really believe God has got you? God has totally got you. It might turn out different to what you plan, but you will be infinitely better than anything you had planned yourself. I could tell you so many stories from my own life where that's been this case. Are you feeling burnt out from trying to live for God in your own strength, trying to give more and do more, but feeling exhausted and worn out? My encouragement is that you rest in the Lord. Spend time with Jesus. Discover that only in his strength can, he, can you give all of your life to him. He is the one who enables you to do that freely and lightly. And as we move into communion now, I'm going to just leave this passage from Matthew 11:28 with you. Are you tired, worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Father God, as we come to communion this morning, we want to remember the sacrifice you gave us. Lord, we want to lean in and trust you. We don't want to keep counterbalancing and trying to save ourselves. Father, the only way to live is resting in your presence. So I ask, Lord, as we come to this table, where we take the bread and the wine, you would remind us in a tangible way the sacrifice that you gave, the surrender, so that we can go free, so that we can live fully and wholly in your presence. I'll just give you a few moments to bring to the Lord anything that you would like to as you prepare your hearts for communion especially relating to the questions that I asked us before around control, around surrender. Let's just take a few moments to bring our hearts before the Lord.